Chapter Twelve of Douglas Duane. This is our LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan. Douglas Duane by Edgar Fawcett. Chapter Twelve. I soon found that I had come to the capital in an altogether unfavorable season. The weather, after a few weeks, grew insupportably hot. I decided to spend the threatening summer in travel through the American continent. I visited San Francisco and many other points on the Pacific coast. I fraternized with fellow travelers. I exalted, or strove to exalt, in the topographical novelties and wonders of mountains, gorges, primeval forests. At the end of it all, I assured myself that the trip had done me untold good. I came back to Washington in early November. No letters have been forwarded to me during my travels. I had ordered that everything in the way of epistolatory communications should await me on my return. A letter from Millicent was the first one that I opened. It plunged me into a state of mind that rendered the reading of the other letters for a time impossible. Nothing could have shown me more thoroughly the loving disposition of Floyd DeMott's wife than that brief expressive message she forgave me. She had kept absolute silence regarding my foolish outburst. I myself had most probably meant nothing that I had said. But whether I had or had not meant it, she was always my devoted friend. She could not have written more fatally unfortunate lines than these, provided she had wished really to appease and comfort me, and I knew well that she had wished so. All the wholesome sanity of purpose and integrity of control that I had gained in my western wanderings seemed to disappear as I read this letter. She forgave me. She did not scorn me. I was now forever haunted by these two recollections. I resorted once more to my studies, and, with receptive facilities quickened by rest, by my researches continually pushed in one direction, I could not restrain the most obstinate tendency. All science held for me at present, but a single point of keen attractiveness— I need hardly tell my meaning more plainly, just here. With the grim thoughts which Millicent's letter had revived, came a kind of fierce counteracting determination to publish my discovery. In this way, for blunt words had best be used when all must so soon glare nakedly, I should perhaps find it easier hereafter to resist the temptations of becoming Floyd DeMott's murderer. For many days I went under a stormy struggle. Once let my great law be known, and the deadly fascination of performing a deed which would bring me a tremendous triumph, and yet remain forever clothed in unexplainable darkness, would of necessity vanished as well. There, beyond doubt, would lie for me a mighty safeguard. What chiefly lured me now was the serene case of my opportunity. Never before had there been built, by circumstances so complete, and a concealed staircase into the very red heart of crime. 
it was as though some man who alone possessed the secret that there were any poison on earth should contemplate the destruction of a fellow creature but if i laid everything bare before the eyes of mankind as i hope to do in my yet unwritten treatise the malign charm of mystery would forthwith dissolve and perish i even went so far in one of my remorseful and morally stung states asked to fix upon the very hall in which i would deliver a course of lectures if i had carried out such a purpose how this country and europe would speedily have rung with my name but celebrity had no imaginable pleasures for me my unrivaled discovery was of no value as a herald or trumpeter of my having been the first to light upon it all that it could mean to me henceforward was the attainment or non-attainment of that reward which at times loomed before me as through a mist of blood i answered millicent's letter but with phrases which took me hours to compose the whole reply was a model of politic discretion more than one while writing it i kissed with burning lips the sentences that she had written i did not affirm that i had spoken senselessly or stupidly to her that evening or that my words had then far outrun the actual fervor of my feelings but i left her to suppose this if she were so inclined i hid under dexterous apologies what might have been pages both of repentance and suffering this portion of my life there in washington may turn out to be the dullest kind of narration and yet to me it teemed with perpetual acuteness of incident almost from hour to hour surely from day to day i underwent agonies of revulsion should i steep myself in guilt should i dash the chance of self-damnation away between these two unrelenting appeals of conscience i was incessantly tossed i had no friends no acquaintances in the populous remarkable city where i had chosen to dwell i had nothing except my science my laboratory my books and the implacable temptation which assailed me equally from each i dared not make the same experiment with two animal bodies that i had already made with two plants it would have been easy enough for me to do so the lower orders of animal life offered clear facilities for a new test but the conditions of my own wretched uncertainty as to what course i would ultimately pursue rendered such an act impious in my sight as the reckless indulgence of my already mutinous longings besides the whole truth seemed pitilessly plain to me one immense vital force entering every form of matter from the meanest insect to the most lordly human mind constituted what we call life in the first and soul in the second the material part of the insect infused by this principle as a sponge is infused by water makes it crawl and, and forage for its food and to be the ifet inferior thing we find it the material part of the man similarly penetrated and endowed gives to his brain his blood his nerves and his sinews the potency that raises him so much higher in the largely inclusive scale of creation 
this i asserted was all and was the all in all i had fathomed the law which governs organic life to its final root i need no further proof that that which i had so simply gained without the slightest fear of absolute extinction i told myself again and again i would submit my own body to the same test that i employed on one of those plants provided the corpse of floyd de mott made previously receptive through those molecular changes which i alone know how to bring about represented the other plant and i had thus ruminated without a vestige of self-deception no shadow of personal fear could possibly affect me in the carrying out of such a design one deterring influence was at work and one alone strangely enough as it now occurred floyd de mott himself smote this resentment a shattering and destructive blow i had passed a wretched night in the early part of it i had walked rather aimlessly about the streets of washington chancing to pause before a certain bright-lit building i had read on huge placards posted at its entrance that there would be a lecture this particular evening by the world-famous religious orator the reverend terrybinth i heard mr terrybinth the religious orator as he chose to call himself i learned that he delighted to declare an unbound enmity for science some of the newspapers had said that he was clever i had once read a report of one of his lectures and did not understand it i was not irritated by it for this simple reason i did not understand it i remember fancying that the shorthand writers who took it down had possibly mutilated its true sense at least i give mr terrybeth the benefit of the doubt but now it occurred to me that i might ascertain whether i had been merciful or merely just it might prove a curious experience too this being brought in direct contact with one of those foes of science i had heard that such a form of dementia existed but i had never quite been able to credit the statement hating science affected me as a process no less extraordinary than hating the bread one ate or the air one breathed science is knowledge purely that and nothing else and all the good that has ever come to mankind has come through knowledge if it has received the least good from another source i have yet to learn its name and quality the large hall was filled with people i could not obtain any seat whatever at so late an hour the ticket-seller as he told me this betrayed an infection of surprise he evidently thought it odd that i should be not aware of mr terrybin's amazing popularity and that i should rashly expect a seat by nearly nine o'clock within this the stronghold of his burning eloquence i concluded however that i had no reason to regret being among those who stood ten minutes of this ordeal would easily put a limit on my endurance mr terrybinth was a wiry spare little man buttoned up to his pale sharp chin or perhaps a trifle beyond it in black broad cloth he darted from one end of his platform to another with his long hair flying behind him and pounded the palm of his left hand with the clenched fist of his right every now and then he apparently strove to be calm but he never succeeded in becoming calm he was always striving as it looked and not succeeding i could no longer foster any doubts as to his hatred of science 
it found sinewy expression in such able periods as these the domain of science inquiry my friends may be wide its possessors assert that it is i don't deny that they're right but evolution has to cower like a whipped town before that marvelous secret which was unfolded to john in patmos they say john never saw anything at all in patmos perhaps they would like to tell us that john was drunk laughter suppressed by an amazed frown though not without a certain dim please curl at the corners of our demosthenes lips oh they're quite capable of such blasphemy as that my friends these priests of the new faith and now let us quietly and carefully examine just what science is trying to do in the way of ruining the old faith the secure immutable and glorious creed founded eighteen hundred sacred years ago it is deliberately putting matter in the place of god bow down and worship matter it cries for you'll never get anything else though you plod and delve for untold decades that's what darwin says and huxley says and tyndall says and what the whole fine little race of new self-sufficient thumb in their vest armhole crowd all say here the mr reverend terry bent magically unbuttoned his funeral broadcloth and strutted about his platform with either thumb in either armhole of his newly disclosed waistcoat and as he did so there was wild laughter and then he made a joke on protoplasm quickly followed by one on the darwinian monkey and as quickly followed by a passionately piastic outburst regarding the glory of god i felt myself turning sick i asked myself as i slipped out of this dense throng hall whether these auditors who so enjoyed such blatant commingled of falsehood and platitude were themselves truly aware of their own folly in listening to easy non-committal slanders against science no i soon inferred they gathered to be amused by an extravagant fanatic who dishes up for them his frivolities of epigrams with spices of a novel bigotry and then as i walked home the thoughts of what science really was and of all that it might in its firm tranquil irreversible way do for humanity enthralled me suppose i muse that someone told the world as i could tell it tonight of how a monstrous nothing lay beyond every aim effort or desire would not a clear gain result from these tidings to the multitudes they addressed hope may die in countless hearts but would not a great moral desire to make the life better and sweeter than it is be born of such a mighty convulsive change would not men and women live for each other far more philanthropically and unselfishly than they now live if this earth were for them the be-all and the end-all would they not turn emotional waste upon aimless worship into pity and love for their fellows a common companionship of sympathy as it might be called which no doctrine or dogma of their vanished faith could equal i could tell them what this insulted science is capable of revealing still my meditations as i moved through the lamp-lit streets of the beautiful city i had chosen for my home there were no flavor or chagrin or annoyance in these reflections 
I had almost forgotten the reverent Mr. Terrybith, with his wild onslaughts against the clear, stolid immobility of fact. I was thinking of my own unapproached discovery. On reaching my own residence, I found a letter from Floyd DeMott waiting for me. I read it with positive torture. It conveyed to me such a patronage that was both astounding and execrable. I regretted my absence. It deplored my disposition toward solitude. It professed a warm regard for my society. It dwelt upon my unhappy predilection for science. It prophesied that I would find a congenial soul in Washington of the feminine and wifely kind. It cracked a joke or two at my protracted celibacy. It referred me to the amiability and tender recipients of Millicent. But I pause here. The letter, as I have said, tortured me. I have never been really jealous of DeMont before. I was madly jealous of him now. He gave me no sign that Millicent had shown him my own letter. If he had done so, there might even have been some comfort in that revelation. It might have argued to me a vague indication that his old unrest had broken out afresh, with myself or its indeterminate cause. But as it was, the whole letter made me grind my teeth together and think how happy he is, and how insolent in his happiness, and yet, and yet, I could dispose him of his happiness if I chose. If I chose, would I, after all, choose? Somehow the Reverend Mr. Terrybin's anathems against science pierced through my memory just then, but above them rose the glowing and lovely face of Millicent. That night I lost myself. A certain moral bond troubled into nullity. I went to bed and slept a calmer sleep than I have known for many previous nights. I woke refreshed, yet obdurate. Henceforth, as I but too clearly understood, there was to be no hesitation, no backsliding, no remorse, no conscientious decrepitude. There was to be nothing except placid action and unswerving will. Pity was a burnt scroll that hope rise from its ashes. I had enough of despair in its devilish Januaries. What I wanted now was full, secure fruitation. I was a man who had torn from the unknowable a wonderful truth. I could use it for my race or for myself. One path was sublime. One was self-degrading. I took the last. End of chapter 12 Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan